The public theologian Brian McLaren tells a story appropriate for Easter Sunday of a time he was on a pilgrimage to what is known as the Holy Land in the Jewish, Christian, and Islamic traditions. On this particular day, he was visiting the Church of All Nations, also known as the Basilica of the Agony. Have any of you been there on a trip? All right, not a lot of Israel adventurers in the, in the house. It's all good. Uh, It's on Jerusalem, on the Mount of Olives, next to the Garden of Gethsemane. And on the Tuesday of Holy Week, before Jesus' arrest by Roman soldiers, it is in this place where he is said to have prayed three times, Remove this cup from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. There's a lot to say about that story, the various versions about what allegedly happened, about perhaps what actually happened, as well as what all those various interpretations mean, both then and now. And for those of us who have studied the Bible closely, all these variables can be swirling through your head as you approach these holy sites. So as Brian McLaren, who has studied this subject very closely, approached Jerusalem's church uh, uh, church of all nations, he encountered an unexpected sign. It was written in all capital letters outside the entrance that said, please, no explanations inside the church. It's a bit unintentionally funny, to me at least, uh, but this sign can be helpful for a variety of reasons. Logistically, many people on pilgrimages come to the Church of All Nations to pray, which is hard to do if tour guides are constantly shouting historical lectures at a level sufficiently loud for everyone in their group to hear. But on another level, um, we can also um, read that warning of please, no explanations in church, to keep those questions and debates and theories outside, and inside is exclusively a place for mystery, for holiness, for faith. And there's a sense in which I get that. It's connected, at least in part, I think, to the collective anguish that many of us experience seeing the horrifying images from Paris earlier this week of the Cathedral of Notre Dame on fire. A sense of deep loss that a centuries-old sight of transcendent beauty was potentially going to be lost altogether. Thankfully, the damage, though quite extensive, is not as severe as initially thought. So on the one hand, if you find yourself in a Unitarian Universalist congregation on Easter Sunday, I suspect I'm safe in surmising that none of us here this morning share the medieval Catholic theology that created Notre Dame in the first place. The groundbreaking for that Gothic cathedral that became Notre Dame was done in the 12th century, and construction continued for almost 200 years before being completed at last in the 14th century at least in his first iteration. But at that point, even the earlier um, Unitarian half of our UU heritage did not, was not to begin in earnest for another 200 years in the early 16th century as part of the radical wing of the Reformation. We'd have to fast forward another two centuries still to reach the 18th century, the age of reason, the age of enlightenment that has also deeply influenced both halves of our UU heritage. We are an enlightenment people. We are a people of explanation. We are a people who explain in church, if we are nothing else. 
our openness, our encouragement to ask the hard questions, even in or especially in church, is embodied in our UU Fifth Source of the humanist teachings that heed us, counsel us to follow the guidance of reason and the results of science and warn against the idolatries of mind and spirit. But we're also a big tent, and it's worth noting in the same breath that our UU first source is direct experience of that transcending mystery and wonder in all cultures which moves us to a renewal of the spirit and an openness to the forces that create and uphold life. And our fourth source is explicitly about the Jewish and Christian traditions, honoring that both halves of our UU heritage were originally rooted in liberal Christianity, even if we are now centuries into drawing widely from all the world's religions, balanced with the insights of modern science. But I invite you to consider that it is our UU first source, that direct experience of transcending mystery and wonder that for many of us was part of that anguish at learning the news of the fire at Notre Dame. That even if you long ago left behind medieval Christian theology or never had it in the first place, there is still a capacity within many of us for awe and wonder at transcendent sacred space, such as a Gothic cathedral. Indeed, I suspect some of that same attraction to transcendence is why many of us come to this sanctuary week after week, to this sacred space. It's part of why we have a tradition of our choir singing Handel's um, Hallelujah Chorus on Easter. It's not that we literally believe the lyrics any more than we literally believe the medieval theology that inspired Notre Dame. But in both cases, we believe it's beautiful, that it's transcendent, that it's worth revisiting. So while I'm all for asking questions in church, there are also times and spaces for setting aside explanations and simply allowing your heart and soul to be open. That shift from head to heart reminds me of an old saying that a tourist is someone who passes through a place, but a pilgrim is someone that allows a place to pass through them and emerges on the other side changed. And I think at its best, that distinction is behind that sign, uh, please no explanations inside the church. It's inviting you to enter with a pilgrim spirit. But for those of us with an inclination toward playing the role of the tourist, the historian, the scholar, all of which are vitally important, uh, that sign can be read as an invitation to experiment with setting those sides um, aside occasionally to see what happens if you allow a place like Notre Dame to pass through you or something like that Easter sermon of John Chrysostom to just allow it to pass through you, to experience directly transcending mystery and wonder in a universe that is ultimately much larger than our human capacity could ever fully comprehend. Relatedly, a little more than a week ago, I completed teaching a course at Frederick Community College as part of their Institute for Learning Retirement on what did Jesus really say and do according to Matthew. Over six 90-minute sessions, we went through the gospel according to Matthew to study what scholars sometimes call Matthew's Jesus, which, as many of you likely know, is not a one-to-one correlation with the historical Jesus. Among a few different reasons, Matthew was written approximately 50 years after the life of the historical Jesus. Imagining something happening in 1930 and someone's writing about it in 1980 when Reagan is president, right? It's, that's a big difference. 
Um, so for the most part, that class leaned toward the perspective of the scholar, the historian, the tourist. Uh, but occasionally there were connections of a more transcendent pilgrim perspective. Moving at the pace of three to four chapters a week, we only made it through 23 of Matthew's 28 chapters. But for the final slide, especially since Easter was approaching, I couldn't resist giving them at least a one brief taste of what lay in the five chapters that we didn't quite get to. So on the final slide, I shared with them just three verses from the 27th chapter of Matthew that are quite different from the story of what many of us had heard Easter is about, or at least what I heard. Easter was about. That's basically my MO um, when teaching the Bible, pointing out all the weird, fascinating stuff that's been there all along. And as I tell my classes, it's even in the King James Version. You're very welcome to bring that. It's weird in that version too. Like it's, it's been there all along. But most people, including most preachers, pay far too a little attention to those pesky uh, details. So on this Easter Sunday, I invite you to hear these three verses from Matthew 27, verses 50 to 53, of what happened according to Matthew at the end of the crucifixion. He writes, Then Jesus cried again with a loud voice and breathed his last. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. All standard fare, and it's pretty unusual stuff, but all standard Christian Easter resurrection fare so far. But then we read in verse 52 something that's only in Matthew and something rarely talked about. It says, The tombs were also opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. After his resurrection, they came out of the tomb and entered the holy city, and they appeared to many. Setting aside the question of what actually happened, what Matthew is discussing is pretty interesting and quite different than what I learned in the theologically conservative congregation of my childhood. I was always told the Easter story was about the alleged miracle of Jesus' resurrection. They didn't say alleged, but all along there was this passage in Matthew about many additional people being raised. And not only did Jesus have post-resurrection experiences, but so too, according to Matthew, did these other raised saints appear to many. For any of you new to UCF, I'll add briefly that by no means am I trying to avoid the question of what actually happened on Easter Sunday. It's just that I've talked about that in like three previous Easter sermons, so I'm trying to tell you something different. But if you want that, it's in our website, Sermon Archive. Uh, for now, I would like, we have to do this every year, right? we got to come up with something new to say. Uh, for now, I'd like to invite us to approach Easter from a slightly different angle that connects with Megan's spoken meditation earlier about the Eastern Orthodox branch of the Christian tradition, which is both different and fascinating from the Roman Catholic branch, uh, more familiar to us in the West. If you want to go deeper, I recommend the book Resurrecting Easter, How the West Lost and How the East Kept the Original Easter Vision. It's by the renowned historical Jesus scholar John Dominic Crossan and his wife Sarah Crossan, whose uh, incredible photographs are included throughout the book uh, as visual examples of how the differences in East and West are not just in the text read, but also in art and architecture. One natural response to becoming aware of the differences between the Eastern and Western branches is to ask, well, which one is correct? Over the years, I'll say that I've increasingly come to understand that the truth, for better or worse, is messier and more complex than that. 
In the case of understanding the Christian tradition, there is almost never one true correct interpretation for all times and places. Much more often, we see multiple um, competing, overlapping interpretations from the very beginning. Regarding the resurrection, there is support in text and art and architecture for both the stories of the individual resurrection tradition of Jesus and the stories of the communal resurrection of many more. But the individual resurrection of Jesus has been almost exclusively dominant in Western Roman Catholicism and in Protestant churches, whereas Eastern Christianity has much more prominently preserved the communal resurrection. And it is from that less well-known Eastern Orthodox perspective that there's potentially wisdom for us this Easter. Uh, You know, there's that old saying that of, of you, you, it's not about you, right? It's not about you, Narcissus, right? Easter, it's not just about Jesus, right? It's about something bigger. Uh, Christianity that focuses almost exclusively on getting individuals to believe in ancient creed about Jesus, to pray the so-called sinner's prayer that they might be individually saved, it misses the point. The historical Jesus was not interested in whether people 2,000 years after his death um, believed in whether something magically happened to him one morning individually. He was always pointing beyond himself to the everyday possibilities that could happen in any time, in any place if people took what he called the kingdom of God seriously or what what 20th century leaders like the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King translated the kingdom of God into modern language, um, the beloved community. Uh, Along those lines, it is notable that the word translated as resurrection is from the Greek word anastasis, um, where we get the word Anastasia. If you ever met someone with that name, anastasis, think about the second, take away the first three letters, ana, stasis, or stasis, right? Inactivity. So it's like restasis, doing something to inactivity. Literally, it means an uprising. Is what resurrection means. And therein we can glimpse the larger significance um, of the resurrection. The Roman Empire thought they had settled the matter when they executed Jesus on the cross. Uh, there's a whole thing to be said about how I really don't get the fixation of Christians with the cross, right? That is a symbol of Roman state execution. You know, if Jesus had been killed in the it's like taking the guillotine or the hypodermic needle and like gold plating it and putting it around your neck. It's really missing the point. That's another sermon. Uh, but uh, the Roman Empire thought they had settled the matter when they executed Jesus on the cross, but people continued to have these direct experiences of transcending in mystery and wonder when they got together and they reflected on the kingdom of God and what Jesus had taught them and searched the scriptures together. And there are related ways as well that the empire strikes back, so to speak, right? We got things like Emperor Constantine uh, and the ways the uh, Christian tradition became compromised and corrupted over the years. You know, it's that thing about with Christianity or Christian supremacy today that you may gain the whole world but lose your soul, right? Somebody said something about that 2,000 years ago, right, as a warning, Nevertheless, as is the case in other religious and spiritual traditions, even when compromises are almost inevitably happen, some of the original authenticity remains, some of the original spirit of resurrection, of anastasis, of uprising against injustice. And as the eastern branch of the Christian tradition reminds us, that uprising is not merely about believing what happened to an individual long ago. It is about a communal insurrection against injustice that can happen in any time and in any place. 
in that spirit of Easter uprising, of new hope and new life and new community that can arise on the other side of despair and death and isolation, I'm reminded of a Mexican proverb that feels quite significant to our own society's need for resurrection, for rebirth, for an uprising today. It's this, and I'll leave you with it. When they tried to bury us, they didn't realize we were seeds. When they tried to bury us, they didn't realize we were seeds.